Life Audio. Hello and welcome to Kindness Project. I'm Dale. I am Tamara. And we're here to help you tackle ancient truths in everyday settings. Well, the new year is upon us. It is. The Christmas season is over. Silas was just asking me, um, is Christmas coming again? And when? <laughs> um, he asked if it was tomorrow. It's not tomorrow. It is not tomorrow. It is a full 12 months from now. Exactly. We're in the year 2024. Welcome. Yeah. And, it feels nice um, over here. Yeah. It's, it, it, you know, it is what it is. Um, but while we were eating ham and mashed potatoes, uh, Twitter, uh, as it is, usually, it was uh, ablaze with controversy. Um, something related to the Christmas spirit, uh, but not, you know, exclusive to that. And uh, it, it was really kind of this interesting conversation that arose uh, relating to um, Christian depictions of Jesus in artwork. And the conversation, it centered on this article that was published in Christianity Today. And it was titled, How Asian Artists Picture Jesus' Birth from 1240 to Today. And it was written by Victoria Emily Jones, who studies and writes about Christian artwork. And the article, it really explores how the nativity has been depicted by various Asian cultures throughout history, really throughout the last uh, almost millennium. Um, And so as American Christians, we're pretty familiar with the kind of Western European depictions of Jesus. Like many of us grew up with images of Jesus that are, you know, still in our heads that, you know, it's this white kind of Western European Jesus, even though we know that Jesus wasn't Western European, he didn't have blue eyes, he didn't have light skin, he was a Mediterranean man with olive skin and likely brown eyes. Um, so, like, that's just kind of like the artistic rendering that, you know, as Westerners, like, that's familiar to us. So this article kind of explored, you know, through different pieces of art, um, what those renderings look like in Eastern cultures, particularly Asian cultures. And so Johnson, who wrote this article, she uh, curated some artwork from um, uh, like ancient Iraq, Syria, Persia, Turkey, India, China, Korea, Indonesia, Thailand, Japan, and the Philippines. And you can see all these ways that these different cultures throughout time have depicted Jesus and you know, particularly the nativity. Uh, is what this article was focusing on, uh, you know, kind of through their own cultural lens and with their own cultural adjustments. And so as I came across this article, uh, I thought it was this really cool kind of art history lesson when it comes to the nativity. People on the internet felt differently than I did. Right. They did not think it was cool. They were outraged yet again. Yeah, they were none too pleased. In fact, uh, Fox News, of all people, uh, they wrote this uh, whole news article about how Christianity Today had gone woke by publishing such an article that was saying that Jesus was Asian, even though he clearly was Western European, obviously. Um, they, didn't, they didn't say that, but if you read between the lines, you know, there's a little bit of that there. Uh, also of note is uh, the fact that Franklin Graham, who is the son of Billy Graham, who co-founded Christianity Today, he came out against Christianity Today, the, the magazine that his father founded, and was basically saying, you know, they're out of their minds and this whole thing. So I thought that we would dive into a bit of that today. A little bit on the front end of like, what did this article, you know, actually say? And was it as salacious as some conservatives have claimed? 
Spoiler alert, uh, no, not really. But then I'd also like to explore, more generally speaking, what is kind of appropriate or inappropriate or helpful or unhelpful when it comes to our artistic uh, depictions of Jesus. Like, is it okay that they're culturally defined? Like, to what measure are we even conscious or unconscious of the fact that, you know, our culture is defining our depictions of Jesus? And then kind of even more generally, like, how much historical accuracy do we need to have in order to understand who Jesus is in a theologically appropriate way? So that's what I want to talk about today, and we'll dive into that in just a moment. Hi, I'm Rebecca Scott. As a servant of God, wife, and mother of four, I understand the juggle of multiple roles and stages. That's why I created the Encourager podcast, to help guide us through the messy middle stage of life. Join me on The Encourager as we challenge the chaos and embrace harmony. Together, we'll create practical systems to balance your roles and fulfill priorities. And we will do it while having joy and energy for both home and work life. Tune in for inspiring stories and interviews, actionable tips, and methods to do both home and work life. Because here, we believe you can do all things, just not all at once. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. So there was this article about Asian depictions of Jesus through, uh, through history that has caused quite a stir, and it's also raised some really interesting questions about how Christians can and should and ought to or ought not to depict Jesus through artwork. And this article was written by Victoria Emily Jones, and it was published in Christianity Today. It was titled, How Asian Artists Picture Jesus' Birth from 1242 Today, And we'll actually link to it in the show notes for you. But I wanted to take a closer look at the introduction of the article, uh, because that's kind of where she provides the most commentary um, that would be relevant to this conversation and the subsequent controversy that has surrounded it. So here's what uh, she says to start the article. She says, quote, Jesus was born in Asia. He was Asian. Take a pause right there. We're going to need to talk about that for a second in a moment. But she continues, yet the preponderance of Christian art that shows him at home in Europe has meant that he is embedded deeply in the popular imagination as Western. Uh, The artists in this photo essay bring him back to Asia, but not to ancient Israel. They make the birth a local event, translating the story into their own cultural context. A little further down, she writes, some may object to depicting Jesus as anything other than a brown male born into a Jewish family in Bethlehem of Judea in the first century, believing that doing so undermines his historicity. 
But the Christian artists who tackle the subject of the Incarnation are often aiming not at historical realism, but at theological meaning. By representing Jesus as Japanese, Indonesian, or Indian, they convey a sense of God's eminence, his with-usness, for their own communities, and for everybody else, the universality of Christ's birth, end quote. And so, Joan, she goes on to note as well that I thought this was interesting, that Christians living in Asia actually tend to prefer pictures of white Jesus uh, because that helps to signify kind of a clean break from their previous religious beliefs, whether it's Buddhism or Taoism or whatever it might be, uh, because those are so embedded in their culture that when they look to white Jesus, that's obviously outside of their culture, and that kind of helps them to make a clean break with kind of these cultural ties or ancestor worship, whatever it might be, because it looks uh, you know clearly different. On the other hand, Asian Christians who live in the West are more likely to be drawn to these types of images of Jesus, because in, in a certain sense, having grown up with white Jesus and knowing that that's not right, or, or historically accurate at least, um, looking at a, a, a depiction of Jesus that looks more like them, uh, in some ways can kind of help to make them feel seen or decolonize their faith or however you want to put it. Um, so she kind of lays all that out. But then from there, Joan, she goes on to show those images from, uh, you know, 12th century Iraq and Syria and Persia and Turkey and India and China, uh, Korea, Indonesia, Thailand, Japan, and the Philippines. And we'll link to that. There's some really cool, it's really cool artwork that uh, you can look at. Um, but Tamara, for you, having read the article and seen the pictures and uh, all of that, what were kind of your initial takeaways from the piece itself? Uh, so I think, one, the piece was neat in in the way that it walked through some history of um, depictions of Jesus that I've never been, like, previewed to before in my life. Like, growing up in the United States, like, you often don't see depictions of Jesus outside of what are familiar to us, which is what I grew up looking at in, you know, my children's storybook Bibles that is... Yeah. Jesus with like long flowy hair, relatively handsome looking, um, light skin, blue eyes, sometimes a beard, sometimes no beard, um, often like a white gown with a red sash, um, <laughs> which even that wouldn't have been true because in order for him to have like a sash with color, it means he would have been rich. Or even a, a, a white, even white tunic. tunic. Yeah. yeah, it would have been like earth so, tones, whatever, however it came off the sheep. Right. <laughs> Like for anything to be dyed would signify that you had money. And obviously, as we read through scripture, that was not Jesus, right? Um, at least in terms of his humanity. But all that to be said, I thought that the, the article was interesting in what it showcased and like just the different depictions. But it brings up a really interesting question um, that I think you can step outside of the article and not necessarily just sit in that context of it. But how should we be looking at Jesus uh, from a like artistic perspective? And that's not um, really a question that the article itself tackled. No, it was the, more kind of like here's some interesting art history. Here's some cool pictures. End the, of article. The article itself was just about art history. It right. wasn't trying to. It wasn't activistic in any kind of way. No, no. So I thought from the perspective of what the article was trying to accomplish, that was interesting. It was almost as if you um, like walked through history right? from a different part of the world, which you and I, like we love museums and we love that kind of thing. So to read this article, it's like, oh, well, that was interesting. Um, but then 
sitting and reflecting on, well, how should Jesus be depicted? That brought me to a, obviously a different thought that I never had before either of like, is this okay? Should this be doing? Obviously, people can do whatever they want, right? But mm-hmm. is this something as Christians we should actually be doing? Right, yeah. And according to the, the critics of this article, absolutely not. Right. And so th- <laughs> there were some people that got upset that this um, piece of art history was on the internet. So one commenter who was quoted, I think, in the uh, the Fox News article, which we'll link to that in the show notes as well, he said, did you guys read the Bible? Uh, other people called it blasphemous. At one point, this was a really interesting subplot in this whole controversy. It got misogynistic when someone posted an image that was taken at a CT staff meeting, and they were noting how many women were in the room and on the team. And they're like, well, it makes sense. Wow, they're so woke and so liberal. Look at how many women they have in leadership. Uh, but there were others who were uh, more theologically sophisticated in their response. And they pointed out that it is actually, you know, theologically significant that Jesus was not only brown, but that he was Jewish, he was from the line of David, and that that was central to God's whole redemptive scheme. And so there, there's the kind of an important theological point there, that it, it matters theologically that Jesus was Jewish, that he came from the line of David. That's a thread throughout the entire Bible that God is going to bless the nations through the nation of uh, Abraham's descendants. And so there were people kind of questioning that. And then here's what uh, Franklin Graham said, who was, this, again, the son of Billy Graham, who founded Christianity Today. He said, quote, guess what? <laughs> it's like the start of that. It's like, newsflash, buddy. Uh, he says, guess what? We don't get to make God in our own image. He is who he is. We must be on guard against anything or anyone who attempts to undermine the authority of God's word, end quote. So Franklin Graham and others took this article as an assault on the authority of God's word. So what do you think? Like, to what measure uh, do we need to be wary of certain artistic depictions of Jesus? How historically accurate should they be in order for us to recognize the theological significance or the artistic significance uh, of um, uh, depictions of Jesus through artwork? Yeah, so my first thought that I think of as I read the people who are upset about this is um, most of them, probably all of them, have not raised any kind of frustration or irritation with the fact that um, within Western culture, Jesus is depicted as a white man with blue eyes. Like, I don't imagine any of them have been outraged about that, right? Right. So... They're just, I mean, to be fair, sometimes he has hazel eyes, okay? <laughs> but I don't know, just the double standard of... I mean, that was my first Asian. thought, was like, hmm, interesting. Jesus can't be Asian. He's It's fine if he's white with blue eyes, even though that's not historically accurate either, but that's okay. Like, we're going to keep all of that, and we're not going to be upset about that. Uh, so I think that was just my first thought, is people who are really upset about this. But um, the interesting question to me isn't so much... Are the people who are mad right or are they wrong? And like what kind of ground do they have to stand on? I think it's just an interesting question in and of itself as uh, really the history of church has wrestled with in terms of artistic work in general related to the image of God, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the church has a rich history of saying we actually shouldn't have 
any kind of artistic work around Jesus because that's actually idolatry. Well, when you say the church, you mean the Protestant church. Correct. Because right. the Orthodox the Church Orthodox and church, the, the Roman Catholic they Church. They don't have any issues with that. Yeah, they're, they're totally cool with it. Right. Uh, thank you for correcting me. So, yes, the Protestant Church has kind of gone the other way of saying, hey, just to be safe, let's not actually create anything trying to depict God or Jesus in any way because we don't want to fall into issues of idolatry where it says, like, don't make a graven image, right? Yeah, um, there are even some, this is an interesting side note, there are some in the more kind of right-wing conservative wing of evangelicalism right now who are even saying, like, don't watch The Chosen, not because oh, they, they think there's necessarily yeah. uh, theological inaccuracies, although they an- do that too, but they say it's a, uh, a violation of the second commandment to not make a graven image, yeah. which is an interesting take because no one, I don't think anybody's worshiping Jonathan Rumi. Right. That yeah. seems like a, the like second commandment is not dealing with just the making of something, but the act of worshiping as though as it, as if that, that, that is thing God. were channeling the spirit yeah. of God himself. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, so back to what I was saying, <laughs> I think that the, the question brought out through this article isn't so much the people who are upset about it. Like, they just, I'm not sure if they're aware of their own double standards. Um, and, you know, sometimes people just aren't, myself included. But, because <laughs> <laughs> as I'm thinking about this, it doesn't mean I have the right answers either. But I think this is one of those topics that is, it's important to reflect on and just engage in conversation around. Because the Bible isn't like so direct in, you cannot do any of these things related to art and the image of God, Right. Um, because it just wasn't within the context that they were working in, in first century Israel. Mm -hmm. Um, but with that in mind, I, I do think, let me back up. I am not an artistic person. (laughs) So I, I have the tendency to even look at artwork and see it for whatever its face value is, right? Where you look at artwork and you can think of like, wow, I wonder what the artist was trying to actually like speak to me through this uh, photo or through this painting or or whatever it is. I just look at it and I'm like, wow, pretty cool. Like I don't see anything deeper often when it comes to artistic work. Um, So when I think about this particular topic, my mind immediately is like, no, we should depict Jesus as he is because he came in the flesh God chose for him to be born where he was born in the part of the world that he was born in um, because it had significance to the history of God's redemption story. Uh, And so for the sake of continuing to be true to that, I think we do need to have even artwork that depicts Jesus for who he truly was on this earth in terms of his humanity. Mm hmm. Um. I do. Th- I mean, that is an important point, but I think on the other side of that, I don't think you necessarily have to have something look his- like culturally and historically accurate in order for it to be not only artistically symbolic, but theologically significant or culturally significant. Like even think about like the uh, Da Vinci's The Last Supper that was made in he painted that in what, like the 1400s, something like that. Right. Which would have been like two, 300 years after 
the creation of what we see as the the common depiction of a white Jesus, mm-hmm. who was modeled after I think eleventh and twelfth century British kings. So that's where we had the shoulder length hair and the white skin and the blue eyes, and that kind of became the gold standard. <laughs> they really, they literally made Jesus in the image of the kings of the right. you know the British kingdoms. And uh, a couple hundred years later, as Da Vinci he paints the Last Supper, I don't think he's being self referential to the fact that. That image was created quite literally with kind of a Anglo-centrism to it. Uh, it's just because he was living in that part of the world, and that depiction became so commonplace that you would recognize that that's who Jesus is. It's a white dude with long hair. He put a little halo around his head. It's Jesus. And um, I don't think it takes away from the uh, historic and artistic impact of that piece because Jesus is white in it. Now... I think it's a double standard to then look at something, say, in 18th century Japan, where this person depicts the nativity and um, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, they they look fairly Japanese in that artist's depiction. I think for that culture, that piece could be just as significant, even though it is equally historically inaccurate. My question is, why are we not upset at Da Vinci? Why is that going to pass? Well, and I, why does the the, yeah. the Eastern uh, depictions of Jesus, which are you know maybe trying to be self referential, but honestly probably not? Um, wh- why do do they not get a pass? Because they they either didn't make Jesus brown or white, um, but he kind of reflects the culture of the artist who is creating that image. So I'm not saying Da Vinci gets a pass. Like, uh, I think that as we're looking at artistic, like depictions of Jesus, they need to be historically accurate. So you would say Da Vinci does not have any sort of value in terms of, uh, artistic, uh, symbolism when it comes to depictions of Jesus. Well, does he have value in the fact that the culture has put value on it? I think that's different than what should we actually be doing as Christians. And so if you are an artist and a Christian, like I don't think that there should be space or liberty to depict Jesus for uh, anything other than who he is. Does that mean that you couldn't do like an impressionistic depiction of Jesus? Like it has to be like a photorealistic oil painting of Jesus. Well, we don't have any of that. I'm pretty sure I could, I mean, we could Google it and probably find something that's like Somebody who surrealistic or yeah. impressionistic or a little bit more abstract that is depicting some event from, uh, whether it's the passion narrative or just the whole gospel narrative, the nativity, whatever it might be, can be in these different styles of art that are, um, on on a range from you know photorealism to kind of completely abstract. Right. Are we allowed to have abstract art, it, or is that somehow um, contradicting historical accuracy? If we have something that's more symbolic rather than literal. Well, if it's more symbolic, I think that's different. the The difficulty that I have with some of these other ones that are trying to have Jesus. Um, depicted within the culture that it's residing in is that the beauty of Jesus is um, the gospel crosses culture and time. Um, 
And so I think of even other world religions, right, where you don't necessarily see this happening with other world religions. Mm -hmm. They are very much stuck within the culture that they existed in. And the followers have to kind of navigate to that culture in many respects, right? Right. So I know that Christianity is different in the fact that it crosses those things, but God chose to send his son through a very specific culture and in a very specific time. And I think as we work through what does it look like to just depict Jesus in any which way we choose, there are parameters that we have to operate within. Because God himself placed those parameters in the fact that Jesus came in the flesh. Yeah, I would say, as though, As a Jewish that, man. Yes, I would. That's true. Like, are we going to now just depict Jesus as a woman? No. Like, where there yeah. are parameters that we have to operate within. Yeah, but I think a uh, a painting is substantively different than uh, a theological treatise. Because mm. so if it's a theological okay? treatise, I'm going to I want you to make sure that you've you know checked right. all your historical data and things like that. But if it's artwork and you're trying to convey an idea about Jesus, um, I think there's a little bit more wiggle room where I wouldn't consider it, you know theologically disrespectful or irreverent or wherever it might be if it's not depicting historical accuracy so much as it is theological significance of a certain aspect of who Jesus is. Obviously, you can't represent all of who Jesus is in a single painting, but if you're zeroing in on a certain aspect of him uh, through artistic expression, Mm -hmm. I think there's room to be artistic rather than because then like we're just not being creative. We're not allowed to be creative when it comes to our exploration of uh, creating uh, images and artwork that uh, are evocative, that point us to wonder uh, in in relation to who Jesus is. We're just not allowed to do that. Or I mean, because there's some Christians that say you shouldn't do that. There's some certain strains of Protestantism that said, no, no oil paintings. I don't care how photorealistic it is. I don't care how historically accurate it is. Right. None. We're not allowed to look at any of that stuff. And I would be more of, of the the mind that like, yeah, let's explore that creativity. Obviously, we're not going to bring it into necessarily a formal worship setting or like elevate it to icon status. I'm not, uh, you know, into the iconography and stuff like that. But I think as insofar as artwork helps us to um, experience things in different ways that are significant, significant truths mm-hmm. that are conveyed to us sometimes in a non-literal way. Right. I think that there's value there. Mm-hmm. So then are you okay with this artwork depicting Jesus as a female? Hmm. I'm not sure. I think that's a, I think at this current juncture, that's a very, that would be a very political thing that somebody's mm-hmm. doing. Yeah. Um. I think that there's a, a whole agenda that's with that. Whereas I think when you look at a 16th century Japanese depiction of Jesus, um, it's not as self-referential as someone today depicting Jesus as a woman would be. If that makes sense. Yeah. I think, I don't think I'm as comfortable with, um, leaning into the artistic expression as you're phrasing it, um, with a depiction of Jesus, because then what are the boundaries you're allowed to operate within? And then who sets those boundaries, right? Like, Obviously, like I said earlier, anyone can like create anything they want to and say, well, hey, this is Jesus, right? Um, 
But at what point are we tethering that back to truth? And what point are we actually saying like, no, this is truly who Jesus is because of what we find in scripture and what we see in scripture, that this is an accurate depiction of Jesus um, because that is necessary that we actually hold to that versus even a non-believer can like create anything they want and say, this is Jesus. Hmm. Well, I think what you're speaking to is the need within the church to have people who are um, contributing their gifts to the community of the church in their own unique way. And I think we need really good biblical scholars. We need really good theologians. We need really good, you know, expositors of the text. Um, And we also need really good artists. And the thing Mm -hmm. about art is that it always pushes the boundaries. Right. Good art does. It it invites you to think think in new ways. And so I think the checks and balances within the church are, um, you know, that's an important conversation to have as our art is being put forward and then, you know, can be analyzed by, you know, people like us who are going to have a whole podcast about it. But, you know, it, like to kind of get to the, the, the kernel of the truth, but then appreciating mm-hmm. the artistic rendering, but then pulling it back to uh, historical accuracy and biblical authority and all those kinds of things. Yeah, I think that some of the, the issues I have with the different artistic expressions is that it then can convey Jesus can be anything you want him to be. He can be anything that speaks to you in that moment. And that's so much like the philosophy of our current culture is like whatever makes you happy, whatever makes you like you become back to the center. And so if we're depicting Jesus as whatever we see him to be, whatever, you know, angle of um, scripture we're trying to put him into that best resonates with me. I think we just get into some like shaky territory. Uh, and again, maybe because I am not as artistically inclined to me, it feels more like, I don't even know why we need to do that. Mm-hmm. And maybe if I were a bit more of an artistic person, um, I could sit in the nuances a little bit better. But in my mind, again, as I'm looking at something, I'm not trying to see, what else is happening within this painting or what else is happening within this picture or what is the artist trying to convey through something. And you and I have these conversations all the time as we're watching movies, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where you're like, oh, well, this was actually speaking to this and this. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, here's the plot that I saw. I don't know what you were watching. You were seeing something totally different for me. Um, and I, I think that when it comes to just any form of artistic expression, if we're trying to have no parameters within the way that we uh, portray Jesus and speak about Jesus or showcase Jesus, um, that just makes me nervous. Mm-hmm. It's interesting what uh, you you just kind of that analysis you just gave is that what if it, we're speaking specifically about these kind of Asian depictions of Jesus from these various Asian cultures across history is that um, you kind of highlighted issues that would arise uh, in these Eastern works of art, but through the, the lens of what is a problem for Westerners. Hmm. Whereas in the East, it's a, it's far less individualistic. Yeah. And so I think even from, if we go, you know, artistic intent or authorial intent, uh, that's probably going to be less so in those Eastern cultures of like this very like individualized me, me, me thing. But I think, yes, if we use that 
you know, even if we start from, mm. from that place and then we pull that into the West and all of the West's assumptions, yeah, it's very easy that you could get to a point where um, it's a very postmodern Jesus. Right. And not just an artistic rendering that is meant to evoke uh, awe and wonder uh, and things like that, but it is uh, something that ends up becoming very postmodern in that uh, truth becomes obscured right. in that. Right. But I think I think at the same time, I don't know that art is meant to be didactic like that. Mm. It's meant to be artistic. But, right. But isn't that in some ways determined by the viewer? Yes. Yeah, that's rather true. than the artist. Mm hmm. So may again, maybe it's because I'm not an artist because I'm never going to create something in such a way that's like this is what I meant to express through this even though everybody else is going to see it 50 different ways than I actually intended for it to be expressed right uh, and maybe that actually happens within the very words that I speak so maybe I can relate to that more than I think but as someone who's on the other end of trying to to just be the one viewing it and figuring out what is the message being conveyed here um, I just don't um i just don't agree with there being no parameters that we're going to operate in as we are depicting jesus mm -hmm. yeah i can see that um it just feels too loosey-goosey and it kind of feels like again jesus can be anything we want him to be um because we just have the freedom of artistic expression and you just didn't understand my artistic expression yeah, I mean, yeah. It doesn't make me theologically inaccurate because you couldn't see what I was trying to express in my artists. Yeah, and I so I think that's where we let artists be artists and theologians be theologians mm -hmm. and then let them cancel each other out on the fringes yeah. of what the, that might be. That makes sense to me. Yeah, what we're talking a lot about here, I feel like, is like a, like cultural translation of mm -hmm. ancient truths. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about that a little bit more generally, but we'll dive into that in just a moment. Okay, so when we're talking about um, these artistic expressions of Jesus, whether it is a westernized Jesus or it is a, um, a eastern Jesus that is, you know, uh, from coming from these various uh, Asian cultures, what we're really talking about is kind of this important question of cultural translation. And this is something that we deal with all the time, even if we're not thinking about it. For instance, when we read Jesus's words in the Bible, we're actually reading words that were translated for us not once, but twice. Right. Because Jesus, he likely spoke Aramaic, and the gospel writers, they wrote in Koine Greek. So they translated his words, uh, Aramaic, and Koine Greek are both dead languages. So he translated it to a third language, which is a living language, which is English. And this is interesting. Uh, if you read the King James Version, there's actually another step in there because we translated it into Latin first, which is another dead language. So it started with Aramaic to Greek to Latin to English. So it's thrice translated by the That's time if you're you look at King it. James. Yes, but if you're uh, reading, you know, any other. Uh, modern translation. Modern translation, which I would encourage you to do. I think there's a lot more accuracy in uh, other versions of the Bible. That's a whole other discussion. It is. We got some King James people, but even if you're reading the like the most accurate uh, English translation that is available, um, you're still reading Jesus's words twice translated. 
Um, also, this is another side note. Jesus isn't even his real name. His Hebrew name was Yeshua, uh, which is translated to Jesus in the Greek. And then that's how we get Jesus in English. And right. I think with a little help from the Germans, because the Germans <laughs> don't have Germans, like, they don't have that Y sound. It was a J sound. So I, I, I'd have to double check. Don't quote me on that. I think that's how we got the J in English, the same way we got like Jehovah. Um, and so um, even his name is translated for us. And we're okay with all of this because it helps us to understand Jesus across barriers of uh, just a, a small thing called 2,000 years and uh, again, uh, across culture, across language. Um, but my question is this, like what determines when it's good to translate things such as the language uh, and when is it not good to translate things such as someone say with regard to these artistic renderings? I think when it becomes a way of uh, people having access to the gospel and actually understanding the gospel, um, that's when it is good for this to be translated, right? There was a point when it was within the Catholic Church, they only had Latin Mass because they didn't want people to... Um, it's not that they want, I want, didn't want them to have access to it, but it was as if there was this hierarchy of how you can come to understand the Bible and how you can come to understand the truths of Scripture. Is It actually, has to actually be taught to you through somebody who fully understands it better. But right, and they the were way, trying to harken back basically to like, hey, this liturgy is the same in mm-hmm. you know down to the word mm-hmm. as it was in the third century. Mm-hmm. And I think that was more the... It was the heart of preservation of right. the cultural moment into which the church was birthed, which ironically enough was the Roman Catholic culture was already a step or two removed from the history of Jesus anyways. Historical yeah. Jesus. Yes, yes. So I think there, there's, we need to have caution on both sides, right? Because the gospel is meant to be accessible to people. Um, that's even a lot of what you're seeing within the, the New Testament is Christianity began to grow not within just the Jewish community, but it was actually uh, within the Gentile community um, that the gospel was then taken to Gentiles and to the world, right? Like that was the whole goal of the gospel. That's what Jesus said um, his redemptive plan was going to come and restore the world, not just within the Jewish community that he was born into, that his disciples were part of. But then you had somebody, uh, Paul, who then began to take this to the Gentiles. Um, And the idea behind Christianity is not that you had to become Jewish in order to be a Christian, but that you had to become a follower of Jesus. So you didn't have to um, transform your life into this cultural context, but that you had to follow Jesus who... uh, crosses the different cultures and spaces and time Mm -hmm. and then at the same time is grafting you in to the jewish heritage of being the one nation that blesses all the nations right uh so back to the original question that you're asking is what is it okay to like take um elements of things to make them easier to understand within different cultural contexts i think as it comes to the actual redemptive plan of christ that is meant to actually cross cultural barriers in a way that you can access it 
from a way that's understandable to your own culture. But I do think there are still parameters that you have to operate within that Jesus was a man in real time, in flesh, who had uh, a cultural heritage that he was part of. And for us to just begin to depict that in any which way, uh, I think removes uh, a bit of the truth of what God intended for that to be. Because why not then have, why did God tether him to a culture? Right. Why put him in a very specific time in like the history of our world? Well, because you couldn't enter into humanity without entering into culture. Well, I mean, he's God. He can do anything he wants to, right? Right. But if you're going to incarnate into a human person, then that person, there's no person who lives who doesn't exist as being embedded into a specific culture. Exactly. But that was intentional on God's behalf. It wasn't just like, "Ah, I'm going to plop him in right here. That sounds fantastic. Like there was... Like from Genesis, you can see this plan of what God was going to be doing and the very specific lineage that Jesus was going to come from. Like it was uh, intentional in in every detail that you can think of. So for us to then feel like we have the liberty to remove that intentionality that God placed upon Jesus and we can just remove it because we want to fit it better within our cultural context. I think that's where we get into Again, just like some shaky ground that we shouldn't be operating within. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a question that um, literally the earliest parts of the church have been struggling with because um, between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers, and there's a couple of you know seminal moments that we see in the New Testament, right. the Jerusalem Council and Acts 15 or uh, the whole book of Galatians, like how Jewish mm-hmm. do you have to become in order to follow the Jewish Messiah, right. even if you're a Gentile? And so they had to struggle through those kinds of things. Uh, the only thing that's you know weirder about us in the modern age is like uh, we've westernized Jesus, who he wasn't mm-hmm. even that. And it's like how Western do you have to become right. in order to follow Jesus when you have you know uh, Christians in uh, Japan who are worshiping a white Jesus, even though that that's not who he was, you know. And so there's this interesting uh, just complexity of. Um, breaking from our culture while also realizing that Jesus uh, is uh, stepping into our culture mm-hmm. to transform our culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But what is the measure of that transformation and what uh, aspects are fundamental to the culture of the kingdom of Jesus and right. what are the essential building blocks of our own culture and where is their compatibility there? Yeah. That's a very big question. And a lot of times it's not clean because there's third or fourth cultures that we pick up depending on who we interacted with or who evangelized to us that are also getting embedded in with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even as you think about like what heaven is going to look like in Revelation where it talks about every um, tribe, language, and tongue is going to be worshiping God um, together, you think about that. The Bible doesn't describe everybody as all of a sudden speaking the same language, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's still distinct about, cultures in heaven. There's still distinct diversity within heaven. Uh, and so that is a good thing instead of everybody trying to um, become one specific culture. It doesn't mean that we all need to become Jewish, right? Mm-hmm. That that's part of the culture. And again, you referenced that was just a great struggle within the very beginning of the church is... Uh, the question of, well, do they need to be circumcised in order to be Christians? Because within the Jewish culture, you have to be circumcised, right? 
And then we see, no, you don't have to be circumcised. Um, but that's just one very specific example that is a, uh, a cultural moment that says, no, you don't have to do that in order to be a Christian. But there is a part of Jesus' culture that is is within the DNA of Christianity itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I think uh, to a certain measure, we do have to become uh, students of first century right. Judaism in order mm-hmm. to um, really understand some of the things that Jesus was saying at their level of nuance. And this kind of leads me into my last question because it's something that um, I kind of go back and forth on and struggle with a little bit is that you and I have a fair bit of privilege when it comes to our understanding of the historical Jesus. Uh, like through seminary training, we know how to translate the original biblical texts or at a least, bit. you know, okay. critically evaluate <laughs> yeah. if a specific translation is, is on or if the, you know, what the interpretive uh, issues are, we can understand that at a pretty granular level. Uh, we've also read scholars who have studied contemporary literature uh, to give us cultural insights uh, you know, into the the historical moment into which Jesus, you know, he stepped into. Um, so we have some tools in our tool belt when it comes to, you know, translation or interpretation um, that a lot of people uh, don't have. And so we can evaluate something to see if it's, you know, a poor interpretation, uh, either because it's, you know, informed, uh, misinformed by first century Jewish culture or it is failing to recognize the influence of its own cultural uh, assumptions on, you know, coming to bear on the text. Uh, most people don't have that. Uh, most people have like maybe a study Bible, very little uh, academic theological training, if any. Uh, and they're just like trying to read the Bible and connect with Jesus. Um, but they can't read uh, Koine Greek. They can't read Hebrew. Um, they don't understand any Aramaic. Um, they don't have a lot of uh, archaeological knowledge of what was going down in Palestine in the first century, uh, but they they just have their study Bible with the little footnotes and stuff, and they're just trying to um, connect with Jesus. So my question is this. How do we strike a balance between a theological gatekeeping, some of which is absolutely necessary? Mm-hmm. How do we balance that, though, with giving as many people as much access to the Bible as possible. So as we look at the scripture, it's very clear on first tier things, right? Like it's clear on matters of salvation. And so I think as we try and frame what is it that there should be some theological gatekeeping, it's definitely surrounding issues of salvation of is Jesus the only way? Yes. Like that is clear in scripture. Jesus says, I am the only way. Um, but if we're saying, like, well, well, you can just think that's whatever you want it to think. Like there are some barriers that we need to build in terms of what is it that we are going to be corrective on somebody's theology? And what is it that we're just going to allow grace? Because it's not as if just because we have these additional tools in our tool belt that all of a sudden we're going to get it right because there are still people who get it wrong, even though they have access to this, like, I don't know, higher level of academia, right? Mm-hmm. Because on knowing more of God and knowing more of who he is, is so much more than just having the knowledge in your brain. Mm-hmm. There are people that I have met 
that have the knowledge, they've studied the language, they can give you the the cultural references, they can give you the timeline, they can give you all the history of what was happening in this part of the Old Testament um, from a political landscape, from a uh, theological landscape within Israel itself, like all of these layers that I don't even know, right? Um, but then you, you look at them and you look at their lives and you think, hmm, I wonder if you are actually following Jesus or you just know a lot about him. Mm-hmm. And then you have people who are on the other end of it where they don't have any idea of even going about looking into these types of things as they're reading um, things within the Old Testament, right? They wouldn't know where to begin of how to, uh, <laughs> as like the phrase that's going around, they wouldn't even know how to do their research uh, <laughs> because <laughs> they just are looking at their Bible and they're praying for the Holy Spirit to move. And that's the part that we have to remember is the Holy Spirit is the one who brings the revelation. It's not because you have hours within uh, the dead languages. It's not because you have hours spent within a certain um, spot within scripture. That's not what brings about your faith. It's actually through the working of the Holy Spirit that you can have revelation. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think we have to And I think the continue. Holy Spirit can work through a bad interpretation of the text. Absolutely. In order to bring about something uh, spiritually fruitful, which I think is where I struggle a little bit because I'm like, hmm, the... You arrive. You arrived at a correct answer, but the method there was like it's going to, you know, fumble you up, in you know eight times out of ten well, on something. So it's like, where do you intervene with that? A lot of times, I feel like, for the most part, I'm not apt to jump up and correct people all the time. No, because even though also, I have a, gr- a greater understanding of, but that of also certain things. feels a whole lot more like Pharisees and Sadducees to me is there's this level of arrogance because you have some kind of additional knowledge that is inaccessible to somebody else. And that really is a privilege. The fact that we've had the opportunity to go to seminary is is not everybody's um, common experience. And to my, I would be um, really torn up if at any point anybody thought I assumed I had some greater sense of uh, knowledge of God or faith in the Lord because of the seminary training I had. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Forever, if anyone were to ever think that I held that over, like, oh, you can't access God in the same way I can. Right. Understanding Hebrew isn't the same thing as being spiritually mature. Right. Yes. Because I've met plenty of people in seminary that I'm not quite sure I'm like, dude, you're pastoring a church right now? God bless your church. Help them. Well, you know, what's interesting is it takes me back to, I think what it says in James, is like you will face trials and tribulations and that will bring about um, perseverance and then endurance. I think that's like the order in which it goes. But there's something about walking through darkness in your life that brings you closer to Jesus. And... There is no amount of books you're going to read. There's no amount of Old Testament that you're going to translate and verbs you're going to parse out. There's no amount of that study time that is going to give you the same fruit as as walking through those dark times and finding Jesus in that place with you. Mm -hmm. And I think that is what really is the heart of the gospel anyways, because who were the people following Jesus? 
They were the ragtag. They were the fishermen. Like these were not the educated people within the community. Who was Jesus calling out all the time? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the educated people within the community. So I think we have to continue uh, to keep hold that intention and keep that in mind is Jesus came for uh, people who maybe aren't in that place of life. Jesus came for the people who are willing to lay down their life for him, to follow him and to surrender everything to him. And that doesn't mean you have to have degrees. That doesn't mean you have to have gone through whatever number of trainings. It just means that you have to have a heart that's surrendered to him. And so as you, the question going back to gatekeeping, like we're not the gatekeepers. Like we, I don't think God ever intended for us to be the gatekeepers. I think to continue to point people back to it, as you think of leadership and shepherding and a pastoral position, sure. Um, But that's more of guiding people rather than it is like slapping them on the head with scripture. Right, yeah. I mean, I was meaning gatekeeping in a, in the most neutral sense of the term. Oh, okay, sorry. Like, there is a gate that we need to keep. Oh, to I always keep people think of from... gatekeeping, and I'm like, I am the one who stands at the gate. Yeah, I think that's more of like a, yeah, I think it's And I have a, a sword, a and curtain. I will chop your head off if you don't. Well, I don't know where that's coming from. I don't but know. But yeah, either. the term gatekeeping has taken on a negative connotation in a lot of spaces. Yes. But I mean, in the, so... most, in the most general sense, like, how do we uh, help maintain safe... Uh, parameters while not doing all the negative things of gatekeeping and just to make it you know as um, practical as possible like for me like if someone's like talking to me and they say you know the way that God's moving in their life or just something that's truth that's been important to them and the way that they arrive at that is through some really poor uh, biblical hermeneutics and biblical interpretation but they arrive at a spiritually fruitful place um, typically in that moment of that conversation, I'm going to receive what they, the, the spiritual goodness that they have arrived at, and I'm going to overlook the hermeneutical peccadillos that I noticed when they were, you know, getting to that process. I think at the same time, um, and this is a little bit controversial, I think there is something that is maybe not the most theologically safe about the whole culture of me, Jesus, and my Bible, and my quiet time. I think that, um, I'm not against quiet time, uh, but I think that we always need to be um, reading the Bible in community, meaning that we're listening to other voices who are also reading that, whether those are other trusted voices in our small group, uh, whether it is commentaries, commentaries, there are, you know, there's so many Bible commentaries that range from, you know, just really kind of layman's interpretational tools to, you know, just the most academic, boring, down to like the participle and the Greek kind of thing. Uh, there's so many resources out there. Um, there's the resources of the people in our churches. I think we should always be reading in community, and that's going to act as natural gatekeeping. Um, right, and it's going to train you- us to look at Scripture in a certain way uh, if we have good you know, uh, faithful elders and pastors who know how to handle the word of God, which is, you know, a requirement of being an elder. Um, then I think that that's going to push us, you know, in, in the field of play, so to speak. And, you know, even scholars disagree over the most minute details of interpretive challenges. And there's plenty of them. Um, but we can kind of get on the same, trajectory together but we have to be doing that in community 
Well, I mean, that's all the New Testament's about, right? Is faith in community, is the church itself, is the building of the church. And the building of the church is the body of Christ. So, um, yes. Yes. And yes so, again. So, so, so yeah. And yes, yeah. a thousand times more. <laughs> is there, there is harm that can be done um, if you are only understanding your faith of you, Jesus, in your Bible. Yeah, because it's kind of like which Jesus, what what version of Jesus, well, which kind of gets us whatever, back to the whole beginning part of this conversation, right? Because it it's almost as if um, it's whatever you think the Bible is saying in that moment of time, right? Based on wherever your head is, right? Mm-hmm. Again, the Holy Spirit can work in supernatural ways, and He does do that often, um, but. There is a great benefit to growing your faith and living out your faith and um, understanding your faith within the context of community of believers. Uh, and that's, to me, it's like, that's exactly what Jesus wanted you to do. Um, it's very much a Western worldview to view that as you, yourself, and your Bible. Yeah. And so, you know, even in our Western culture, there are cultural things that we need to be aware of in terms of the yeah. the way they're going to bias us. And so, you know, as we look, you know, to Jesus, he like both transcends culture, but then he intersects with culture. He transforms culture. He indigenizes to culture. Um, and I think there's like two things that can be true at once. On the one hand, Jesus, he came within a specific cultural and historical moment and he entered into human history, you know, in a specific moment, in a, within a specific culture. But on the other side, the gospel is also culturally flexible. Christianity is probably the single most culturally flexible religion in human history because wherever the gospel goes, it indigenizes. In other words, you don't have to become Western European in order to become Christian. And that's a beautiful thing. Uh, at the same time, we always have to be aware of our own cultural assumptions and the way that they may be creating blind spots for us in just um, understanding certain aspects of who Jesus is and who he wants us to be. Uh, and those can be really hard to identify, especially um, when it's within your own culture, because um, we tend not to think of our own culture. It's just kind of like uh, a fish doesn't think about the water that it's in. It's much easier to see the uh, cultural blind spots of other people in other cultures um, but it's not as transparent to us in our own culture. So we just need to be intentional about that. We're not always going to get that right. Um, and um, it's going to be kind of a messy process in that. But even so, I think there's, there's grace for that. Um, because as we're striving to discover the real Jesus together, um, he's carrying us along the whole way. And he's always going to meet us wherever we are in our journey of understanding him and understanding our own culture and how those things intersect. Thanks for listening to the Kainos Project podcast. Thank you also to our partners at Life Audio. Visit lifeaudio.com to find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in the network, including shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. If you enjoyed hanging out with us today, consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a rating and review. And be sure to visit our website, kainosproject.com, for more helpful resources. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.
Finding uplifting news in today's headlines is often like searching for a needle in a haystack. At the Story Behind podcast, we believe in the power of finding heartwarming tales and are happy to share empowering stories with you every week. Hear about how Steve Harvey surprised a dying man on Family Feud with $25,000. Get inspired by the note a waitress received from a patron dining alone. And even hear about how one VIP passenger made a hardworking pilot get emotional before his flight. To start listening to the Story Behind podcast, visit lifeaudio.com or search Story Behind on your favorite podcast platform.